day after day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Bethel. Oh, I like that. Good morning, good morning. My Bible is open, of course, to Hebrews 6. If you would navigate your way to the 6th chapter of Hebrews. And then also, you'll be helped this morning if you could find your way over to Colossians 3. So you might want to look at two passages there. I am pleased, so so very pleased to be with you again. I mentioned on Friday good memories from times with this church in the past. And it has been great to renew acquaintances and to make some new acquaintances at the Laurel Heights Church. I do appreciate very much. Several of you sent me emails ahead of the meeting encouraging me and saying you're looking forward to that. That's always helpful. It lifts the preacher's spirits and helps him be ready to come and ready to share the Word of God. It's Hebrews 6 that says, our theme passage, verse 18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... So we have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that comes, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. So it is a delight for us to have the opportunity to think about hope and for us to work together just one day now. We'll think this morning about overcoming sin and a little bit in our worship hour we want to talk about the hope of heaven. And I would have you navigate over to Colossians, the third chapter, because that's where I want us to think through some ideas about overcoming sin today. And maybe the place as you're turning to Colossians chapter 3, maybe the place for me to begin is with this wonderful, wonderful, friendly-looking fellow. I'm going to guess that you know what that is. Maybe maybe you know all too well about te- Texas fire ants. I preached this lesson in Kentucky a couple of months ago and had to do a little research. Not everybody in Kentucky recognized fire ants, but yep, they are far enough north. They're making their way all the way to Kentucky and beyond. Fire ants are not native to the United States. They first appeared in 1918 near Mobile, Alabama, but by the mid-30s they had reached Mississippi. And now, as I said, they're everywhere, particularly here in the great state of Texas. And we know when you see in your yard one of those volcano-looking mounds, what you are dealing with there. Inside one of those can be literally up to a 100 thousand fire ants and if you don't watch where you walk this has happened hasn't it maybe you didn't know that you had one of those big mounds by the driveway and you're saying goodbye to somebody and you're talking and you didn't watch where you put your foot or there was a potluck and you were at the park and you were talking and visiting and you didn't watch where you put your foot and the next thing you know about a hundred thousand of those little monsters come swarming out each one of them equipped with his own personal blowtorch and they all climb onto your ankle and it feels like red hot needles 
have been stabbed repeatedly into you. And not only is it bad enough when they start stinging you, yeah, what happens afterwards? The stinging finally begins to go away a little bit and then you get these ghastly blisters that just look terrible and they itch. And that's no fun. And sometimes, depending upon how allergic you are to the venom that they are spitting, sometimes you can even get another round of painful, stinging sensations. These guys are just wonderful. They pack a wallop and they can light you up. Now, what's the answer to fire ants? answer to fire ants is... We kill them. We want them dead. I've never met anybody who said, oh yes, they're so cuddly. I, I think I'm going to try to make them into pets. Nope. Nope. We want them exterminated. No one's trying to tame them. In fact, nobody's even going for peaceful coexistence. Have you ever heard someone say, yeah, that's their half of the yard. I'm staying on that. No, no, no. We want them killed, particularly if you have little ankle biters or if like Dean and I, you have grandkids. Don't want my grandson out in the backyard not aware of the threat. And then he ends up in a bad situation. So whether that means you're calling a company to deal with these fire ant mounds, or whether you're going down to Home Depot and you're buying whatever toxic chemical that they've bottled up for you to pour on them, or maybe you've got on the internet and somebody says, this is my uncle's recipe and if you pour this on them, they will die. We want to kill the fire ants. Now we're going to read the Bible. Colossians 3. Read with me in Colossians, the third chapter in verse 1. So then, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, Colossians 3, 2, on things that are above and not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death these sins. I'm asking you this morning if any of us take that seriously. When we have a fire ant problem in our yard, we want to terminate that. We want to bring that to a complete and total end. Nobody says we're just going to manage the fire ant problem. But a good friend of mine asked on social media, is it possible that sometimes what we want to do with sin in our life is we're just going to we're just going to manage it. We're going to try to kind of keep it under control so it doesn't completely overrun our yard, I mean our life. But we're not making any real efforts to, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Paul actually says this again. Notice verse 8. Verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Paul says these sins need to be terminated. They need to be wiped out. 
And I'm asking you if that's your attitude towards sin. Have you ever had a conversation with a Christian and said, so about that sinful habit you were struggling with, oh, I put that to death. Oh, hey, you know, a couple of months ago, you came and asked the brethren for prayer, came forward and said that you had a pornography problem. How's that working? I killed that. Hey, what about that bad habit in your life? Nope, put it to death. Is that the language that we use to talk about our sins and what we're doing with them? Interested in that? Would you be interested in talking a little bit about what it would take for us to kill sin? We're talking about hope and we're talking about the hope that God is working in our lives. And I think all of us would agree that God is right smack in the middle of Colossians 3, 5, God would love for us to get serious about sin and put sin to death. And that's why Paul wrote to the church at Colossae where evidently there are a number of brand new Christians and they actually seem to be a little disappointed that just because they were baptized and arose to a new life in Jesus Christ that sin has not come to a complete cessation in their life. That has led to some false teaching in Colossae And there's been some misunderstandings about what it means to be a Christian. So Paul writes to them and helps them get down to the brass tacks of what it's going to take to kill sin. And that's where we are this morning. We're going to talk about God working in our lives to get sin out, rooted out, keep it out. And an emphasis this morning would be on the hope that that can happen. Rather than shrugging our shoulders and saying, no, probably never be able to do that. The hope that God will work in our lives and we can do what we need to do to put sin to death. I need to give credit this morning to a wonderful article I read by a Bible scholar named Sinclair Ferguson. I read that during the pandemic and he really helped me to think more about Colossians 3 and about putting sin to death. So I'm going to share with you this morning six ideas from Colossians that will help us terminate sin. You ready for that? Let's go to work on sin in our lives and that's going to begin by backing up in the text. Can I back up to chapter 2? In chapter 2, let's look at chapter 2 and verse 8. In chapter 2 and in verse 8, There we read that Paul says, 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, that's not according to Christ. Then in chapter 2, now verse 16, he says, So don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadows of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Paul sums that idea up at the end of the chapter in verse 21 when he says, don't handle, this is what these false teachers are saying, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. They refer to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts, human teaching. These 
indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, we don't know everything about all the false teaching that's going on in the church of Colossae. There seems, however to be a strong Jewish sense to this. That there is some Jewish teaching that's being stirred up and that's being mixed in maybe with some pagan ideas all being fronted with the idea of if you do this, this will lead you to the higher spiritual life. Oh, look at the rabble down there. They don't get it. They don't know what I know. If you'll listen to me, I can help you be elite. Better than everybody else. And that will help you master sin in your life. And part of that is always very tempting to us. Because all of us love quick fixes. Particularly when somebody comes along and says, Oh, this sin problem that you're going to have, you're going to need to do a lot of work on that. It's going to be a lot of hard work. You're going to need to break habits. You're going to need to set new habits. You're going to take lots of effort on your part. When someone else shows up and says, I can fix this in the next 30 seconds, we're all in for that. Which means, yeah, we can easily fall for gimmicks. Fake tactics that Paul says, verse 23, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And that still goes on today. You know what you need to do to conquer sin? How do you pray? Yeah. Do you just do that fold your hands and bow your head thing? Let me tell you, if you really want to pray, what you have to do, you have to fall on your face before the Lord. Now that's how you really pray. Or someone will come along and say, what about praying and walking? That's what you need to do to reach a higher spiritual level. Or what if you prayed this prayer? I've got a certain prayer. And you just say it over and over and over. Oh, that's someone else come along and say, have you tried fasting? Oh, fasting. You want to be a spiritual person. That's what you got to do. You got to fast. What about listening to this podcast? You need to listen to this podcast. You need to read your Bible eight hours a day. You need to do fake tactics that promise enlightenment, promise control of sin in our lives, but are of no real value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These things have an appearance of wisdom. They're very attractive. Paul says those kinds of gimmicks, they're not really going to help you overcome sin in your life. Instead, we need to start by thinking about our identity. That's where Paul goes as we open chapter 3. Sometimes Paul says, the trouble is we have forgotten who we are. Look again at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are of earth, for you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Listen to all of that language there about being in Christ. 
that our identity is found in Jesus. We have, verse 3, died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ, verse 1. Our identity, our life, Paul says, verse 4, is now in Him. And by the way, this isn't the only time that Paul talks about identity issues. Just step out of Colossians for a moment. Let's have Romans 6. In Romans 6... In Romans, the sixth chapter, let's try a little bit of Romans chapter six. Watch how much this is about who you are now. In Romans six and verse three, don't you know that all of us have been baptized into Christ? We're baptized into his death. We were six four, therefore buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's the result of that? We know then, verse 5, that if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like Him, and we know our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Feeling that identity language there? Verse 11, so you must consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 17, thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you committed, being set free from sin. Verse 18, you are slaves of righteousness. Paul loves that kind of talk. Who am I now? Who did I used to be? Who am I now? In 2 Corinthians 5, in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll bring that to the conversation. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says there, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And as I turn back then to Colossians 3, watch Paul still working that idea. All these ideas, verse 3, died, your life is hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, he's still pushing that in verse 9. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. It's about who you are, and it's about who you see yourself as being. This is an identity issue. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. If you meet somebody, and you're talking to them, and they say, I'm a basketball player. What does that mean? That's different than somebody who says, yeah, I play ball. I play some basketball. Now, that's a very slight change in wording. I am a basketball player. I play some basketball. Very slight change. But it means a lot, doesn't it? Somebody who says, somebody who says, I play some hoops, that means on random occasions, if a game is going on, I might participate. But when somebody says, I am a basketball player. They are saying that their identity, who they are, how they live their life, is directed towards basketball. That's what they do. It has become who they 
are. And in fact, we would be quite surprised if somebody who weighed, I don't know, 600 pounds and was shoving junk food in their mouth said, oh yeah, I'm a basketball player. You are? See, their life doesn't look like that identity, does it? Do, do you watch basketball? No, I never watch basketball. Do you, do you have basketball shoes? No, I just wear sandals. All of that would be very disconnected in our mind because they're making a certain kind of claim. I do this athletic endeavor. I play hoops. Okay, I am a basketball player, but their life is not in concert with what we expect from somebody who identifies as an athlete, who identifies as a basketball player. That's why Paul is saying so much here about identity, not because he's concerned about basketball, but because he wants the Colossians, he wants you and me, to see ourselves as Christians, as being in Christ. And we make that our identity, it becomes a package. When we identify that way, we start to see there are some things, like the 600 pound guy who's shoving corn dogs and chili cheese fries in his mouth, this just doesn't go together. And so when I identify as being a Christian in Christ, it begins to change who I am. Which is why I would say to you, we want to do better than say, yeah, I go to church. No, no. Instead say, I am a Christian. Instead of saying, yeah, I've got some religion. Say, I am a disciple. I am a follower of Christ. See how those identity statements help us? think in different ways about who we are and what we do. I am a Christian. Putting your identity in Christ begins to make big changes for us. Which then would help us look at Colossians 3.5. In Colossians 3.5, now we can think a little bit about deciding that we can do it. Paul says... Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, and then list some sins. Sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. If you know anything about running, the name Roger Bannister will be meaningful to you. Roger Bannister was an English med student who on May the 6th, 1954, worked his usual morning shift at St. Mary's Hospital. Then he took an afternoon train out to Paddington, from Paddington Station out to Oxford, where he ran a one-mile race at Oxford University. Bannister actually wasn't a great runner, and he even hadn't had a whole lot of time to train. But he was determined on that day, May the 6th, 1954, to do something that no one had ever done. To do something that people said could not be done. Many experts said it was humanly impossible for a human to run a four-minute mile. The human body just couldn't do that. You can't move your legs that fast. It was impossible. On that afternoon, Roger Bannister ran the first four-minute mile. 
He did it. He showed that what so many people said could never be done, in fact, could be done, would be done. He did it. But there's more. Within 46 days, Bannister's rival, a man named John Landy, he ran a four-minute mile. And shortly after that, he broke the record and ran a 357 mile. A year later, three runners ran four-minute miles all in the same race. In fact, in the next 24 years, over 200 runners broke the four-minute barrier. What everyone said previously can't be done. No one will ever do it. You'll as soon jump over the moon as run a four-minute mile. Bannister did it, and after he showed it could be done, more than 200 other men did it. And what happens when we start talking about killing sin is sometimes I fear we don't take that seriously because we just don't think we can. We aren't convinced that it's possible to terminate these sins in our lives. So maybe we give a little weak effort and then we are defeated by the devil and we shrug our shoulders and say, well, I never thought I could do it anyway. But the principle here, the banister principle is, he did it. I can do it too. And that's exactly where Paul is in Colossians 3 and verse 5. He's not asking you to do something that is beyond your reach. This is not the, hey, why don't you hold your breath for four hours underwater passage. No, he's talking to the Colossians about something he believes in the power of Christ. They can do. God is working in their lives. That's our hope. And it can happen. If you have questions about that, it's Hebrews 12 that you want to read. In Hebrews 12, let's try a little bit of Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. In Hebrews 12, in Hebrews 12 and in verse 1. There we read, Hebrews 12 and 1, Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12, 1, in its context, goes where? With all the stuff in front of it. It belongs to Hebrews 11 which unfortunately people often call the great hall of fame of faith. And Dina knows when someone says that, puffs of smoke begin to emerge from her husband's ears. Because what we do to Hebrews 11 is we say all of these people aren't like us. And they're super disciples. And they're amazing followers of God. And we set them on a pedestal. It's the Hall of Fame. I've been to the Hall of Fame. You've been to the Hall of Fame? Cooperstown's incredible. But nobody goes through the Hall of Fame and looks at these amazing baseball players. Babe, Ruth, Nolan Wright. Well, I'm just like them. No, I'm not like them. They're in the Hall of Fame. I'm not. See? See? And that's what we do to Hebrews 11. Oh, they're so much better than us. They can do things I can't do. But that is exactly the opposite of the purpose of the Hebrew writer. He writes about all of those people in Hebrews 11 to say, they're you. They're not special. They're not unique. They're not different. They're you. And then he says what? Hebrews 12.1. They did it. You 
can too. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. So therefore, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance. We are surrounded not by a hall of fame, but by a cheering section who is saying, I did it. Go for it. Go, go, go. You can do it too. Don't think it is impossible. Look at Hebrews 11. They did it. We can do it too. And you need to know, whatever sin you're dealing with in your life, with God's help, you can beat it. Period. We can walk in the Spirit. We can set our mind on things above. We can overcome sin. We can kill sin. And knowing that and believing that is a huge start. Now let me just add to this then, this idea from verse 5 about coddling sin. About coddling sin. Can I turn back to Colossians 3.5? In Colossians 3.5, Paul says, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now growing up, I heard that verse out of the King James Bible. King James Bible is an amazing Bible. If you're holding a King James Bible on your lap this morning, God bless you. It's an amazing translation of the Word of God that has done countless amounts of good throughout the entire world. However, it's not always easy to read. Colossians 3.5 in the King James reads like this. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, I think I get mortify. I'm pretty sure that means put to death, mortify like the morgue. But does anybody know what evil concupiscence is? I think I got a shot for that once, didn't we? Oh, I don't want that concupiscent stuff. What is that? An inordinate affection that may have had some meaning in 1611. That doesn't mean anything to us now. And that kind of fuzzy language can obscure what we're trying to do with sin in our life. And even if, even if we don't use 1611 language... You watch. We have a marvelous capacity to drum up our own fuzzy vocabulary. Ever heard somebody say, Yes, I have some struggles. What exactly does that mean? Oh, I'm being tempted a little. I need to reorder some of my priorities. I have some things that I want to take a harder look at. See how that kind of plain vanilla language is about as useless in dealing with sin as evil concupiscence. We don't know what it means. It's not specific. It's not identifying anything. And it is not calling out sin for the ugly thing that it is. 
Paul uses very frank language. He does not coddle sin with euphemisms or cute phrases or vague religious jargon. He says, I'm talking about sexual immorality. Not, oh, but I love her. Not, it's an alternate lifestyle. No, not, love is love. He calls it impurity. He calls it passion. He calls it evil desire. Not, I have some struggles. What I want is wrong. It's evil. I need to stop wanting things that are wrong in God's sight. And then he says, I'm talking about covetousness. And if anybody had any questions about that not being clear, he says, what's the rest of the verse? Which is idolatry. Colossians, you used to go up the hill to that temple and you fell down in front of that statue of marble. You know what idols are. Well, when you let the wanton desire for more stuff and money infect your heart, it is your heart then that is bowing down to the idol of wealth and stuff and things and possessions and materialism. Stop with that. Let's talk about it exactly the way it is. Paul identifies and labels sin clearly and correctly. And I would say to you this morning, if you want to get serious about sin in your life, call it. Call it what it is. Don't use nice-sounding labels that gloss over the awful works of the devil. Let's just say it like it is. I need help with my evil desires. I'm trying to overcome sexual immorality. There is impurity working in my life. I want to put a stop to that which we will be helped with then if we take a look at verse 6. In verse 6, in verse 6 Paul says, "...on account of these things, the wrath of God is certainly coming." I want us to think for a moment about that. And I particularly, you know, we have different goals this morning, goals about killing sin and so forth. My goal is to somehow keep from spilling water across everything. And I'm not entirely sure we're going to make it to the end of the class without that, without that actually happening. But I'm going to do the best I can not to baptize my notes. Look at verse 6 again. We need to pay attention to what sin does. Every now and then, someone will come to you, we've all had this experience, and they say, I want to tell you something, don't want you to take this personally. What does that mean? What that means is, in about a moment... They're going to say something incredibly offensive, really, really hurtful, but you're supposed to just stand there and kind of smile because it all began with that multi-purpose phrase, don't take this personally. You know, don't take this personally, but she must be really a big disappointment to your parents. <laughs> well, thank you for, for that feedback, I guess. What I want to say from verse 6 is that while we're concerned about sin in our lives, what we really need to do is think about what sin does to God. 
Because there is no way that you can tell the Lord, hey, don't take this personally, but I'm now going to do what I want to do, and I'm not going to follow your word and your commands. I've decided that I'm smarter than you, Lord. You said this is not good for me. This is not the path of life. This will not bring me to heaven. But you know what? I know better than you, God. Get off my case. I'm doing what I want to do now. Back it off, God. There's no way when our conduct, our actions, our behavior, and what we do announce to God, I don't care about you, I don't care about what you said, I'm doing what I want to do, that God isn't going to take that personally. Verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Don't tell God not to take our sins personal. Because all of our sins represent a decision to reject God and His ways and substitute our own selfish interest instead. Sin represents disorder in the universe. It is something He did not create. It is something He doesn't desire. It is something that does not fit and does not belong in our world. And it angers God. We don't talk about that a lot. Maybe because talking about the wrath of God makes us uncomfortable. But it should make us uncomfortable. Because God will move fully and finally to remove from His creation that which does not belong sin and rebellion. And while we should talk about how disappointed God is when we sin, how unhappy God is when we sin, how hurt God is when we sin, all of those are very valid ideas. At Westside where I preach and labor, we are reading in the Minor Prophets this year as our congregational reading plan. And it didn't take us five minutes to start realizing that sin grieves God. Maybe one of the images that we don't have of the Lord is tears running down His face as He observes what His people are doing. That is real. Read Amos. Read Hosea. But it is not the only reaction God has to sin. On account of these things, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. What we need to think about as we talk about rooting sin out of our lives, as we talk about terminating sin, what we need to think about is how much God has done for us, how much God blesses us, how much God is working for us, that's our hope, and that sin then is a slap in God's face. Somewhere in here, we need to factor that God is angry at sin, that God hates sin, and I don't want a part of anything that would bring the wrath of God. Maybe the thing to note here is that Colossians 3.6 isn't about the pagans in Colossae. It isn't about, look at those idol worshipers. Look at that temple prostitution. Oh, can you believe it? No, Colossians 3.6 was written to disciples. It was written to Christians like you and Christians like me. And Paul says, let's get these sins eliminated because these sins, your sins, they anger God. Which would bring me then to this last idea, which is that we need to practice righteousness. 
I'm always impressed with now the Bible is so practical. The Bible never says, let's take this out without saying, let's put this in. We don't just walk around as empty shells. We fill up. We take out the bad and we fill up with what is good. So in Colossians 3, in verse 12, Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, and kindness, and humility, and meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts unto God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The reality is, sometimes we may put so much effort into pulling sin out of our lives that we forget to put a similar amount of effort into putting righteousness in its place. And we may have forgotten that we can't just be emptying ourselves, we need to be filling ourselves. Filling ourselves up, verse 12, with compassion and kindness and patience with others. Ever noticed how little of that there is in our world today? I'm telling you, you don't get out of my way, honk, honk, honk. The light changes from red to green, and I mean in the next millisecond. Why aren't you going? Get to the coffee shop. Barista doesn't make my coffee exactly the way I want it, exactly the temperature I want, with all the complicated order. Oh, people are screaming and yelling. Where is verse 12? Kindness, compassion, patience, forgiving others, verse 13. Showing love, verse 14. What if every day I got up and thought about how today can I be more patient? What can I do today to be extra kind? If somebody tramples on me, how can I forgive that person? What can I do to put love around everything in my day today? So that, verse 15, the peace of Christ would rule in my heart. How much anxiety in our world? How much depression? How could we, verse 15, say, I'm having the peace of Christ in my life today. I'm, I'm going to build that in. I'm going to make sure, talk about this a little bit Friday night, I'm going to make sure there's some things that are not coming into my life that fuel hate and division and divisiveness and anxiety and fright. I'm going to shut that out so that I can have the peace of Christ. Maybe I could worship verse 16. We're doing that today, but that's verse 16 is not just for today. I could sing... And seek in everything I do, verse 17, to glorify God and to build up. And I'm not doing anything that doesn't glorify Christ. You look at verse 12 to 17, that's a list. You write that out on a post-it note, you stick that on the mirror. 
Gentlemen, we can talk to the guy that we shave every morning and say, hey, let's get to work on verses 12 to 17. We'll be busy all day, won't we? Yes, we will. Plenty there for us to get to working on. And the more I work on verses 12 to 17, I don't know when I'd have time to sin. I'm so busy doing right things, well, I'll have a whole lot less opportunity to do the sins that Paul talks about in verse 5, in verses 8, and verses 9. I can crowd out sin if I will practice what is right. I'll tell you this, it is really, really hard to sin when you're doing what is right. So I hope those ideas, six ideas then, from Colossians 3, will help you as you think about sin in your own life. And as you think about the hope that we have that God will work in our lives and will use those ideas to bring sin to an end. Maybe the thing to say here is since we started with fire ants, let's just end with fire ants. What happens in your yard... If you see a fire ant mound and you don't do anything about it. Well, spring break comes and the fire ants leave and go on vacation to Florida. No. If you have one fire ant mound and you don't do anything about it, in a minute you have two fire ant mounds. If you don't do anything about that, in a minute you're going to have four. And pretty soon they're everywhere. Let me ask you this about sin in your life. If you have ongoing, persistent sin, sin in your life that you have decided you're just going to have to manage, you just have detente, I'm living with it, I can't do anything about it. Do you really imagine that one sin like that will remain one sin? Isn't it so that in a minute you're going to have two and in a minute you're going to have four? There'll be lies to cover up the first sin. See how it spreads? And then there'll be hypocrisy on top of the lies and the first... See? See? What we need to do is pick up Colossians 3. Gird ourselves for spiritual battle and be determined that we are going to put sin to death. Our hope from the Word of God is that with God's help, God's work, we can, Colossians 3, 5, put sin to death. Let's pray about it. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, our God, we are so thankful for your word that your spirit has inspired. And we ask that you would bless us this morning as we encounter the sins in our lives. Help us not to coddle them, tolerate them, determine to live with them. Instead, Father, we pray for your work in our lives through your word to put sin to death. Help us to walk closer to you. We hope in you and your work in our lives. In Christ we pray and amen. Thanks for listening so carefully. We are dismissed.